Well, good morning. It's great to be uh, with you this morning. Um, I've, I've come from Bradley Stoke, and I managed to run the 10K in between. So, you know, you can, I didn't. That's a joke. Um, I can't run 10 kilometers. Um, my name's James. I'm part of the team here at, at City Church. Um, and uh, we're going to be looking uh, at Ephesians chapter 6 together and looking at the next kind of, in, uh, kind of episode in the armor of God, which is the helmet of salvation. Uh, and so we've called this series, What to Wear to the Battle. Uh, and this was a, a letter written by Paul. Uh, and uh, he's writing to a church in Ephesus and the first two or three chapters are particularly focused on the essence of what it is to be a Christian. Uh, the essence of what it is to be a Christian. The idea, or establishes the idea that when, when someone becomes a believer in Jesus, everything changes. Their whole identity changes. They're no longer living for themselves, but they've been joined to Christ. That they've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And the purpose that God has for their life is no longer what they decide, but actually they're joined with a body that, which is aiming towards everything coming under Christ in the future. And so he's laid out these, these theological truths in the first couple of chapters. And then in, in chapter 4, he, he changes tact a little bit, and he starts to talk about how these truths affect the way we live. So he, he takes on some pretty hefty subjects. He talks about ethnicity, he talks about marriage, parenting, family, he talks about slavery in the Roman Empire. And so you might be thinking, as we've been reading this letter, well, what, what is the point? What is, what is Paul's point in all of this? Is there an overarching theme? To this letter, because if we can work that out, it's going to help us understand something of what we're going to read together this morning. And, and Paul's trying to develop something in the people that he's writing to. And what he's trying to develop is maturity. He's trying to develop spiritual maturity in the lives of the Christians that he's writing to. He's writing to develop spiritual growth. A greater understanding of who God is, who we are, and how we ought to live. And so when we come to chapter 6, which is the final chapter in this letter, Paul identifies that there are significant challenges that a Christian faces. And that although we've put our faith in a good God, that doesn't mean that life is just fairies and daisies for the rest of our lives that there are significant challenges that we have to deal with. There are battles that we face. That the Christian life isn't a playground, it's a battleground. And Paul calls the Christians here to stand firm, stand firm in what they believe in. And that there's an enemy who longs to destroy and destruct everything that is connected with God. Through the world that we live in, through our own sinful desires and other ways that he tries to come up with to disconnect us from God and to stop us growing in our faith. The whole armor of God is to develop maturity in the face of adversity. And so as we look at the helmet of salvation this morning, we need to focus 
on how we're going to grow as a believer, grow in our relationship with God, grow in our relationship with each other. You see, we're not fighting to win the war. Jesus has already done that. He's already fought. He's already won the war. But what we are fighting for is to maintain that victory in our own lives. And there's a significant difference there. We're fighting to maintain the victory that Jesus won for us in our own lives. You see, we can be a little bit like what Paul describes as a beach ball. No, he doesn't say anything about beach ball. Uh, But he does describe something in chapter 4 that can happen to us as Christians. He says that we can be like children or babies tossed around to and fro. You've got to try and keep it up. There we go. Oh, oh. I think there needs to be some more volleyball lessons. You can just leave it in the corner there. It's not mine, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Just borrowed it. Um, You see, the beach ball didn't have any control over where it went. True or false? I'll do that again. The beach ball didn't have any control over where it went. True or false? Very good. Well done, class. (laughs) Tell how I used to be a teacher. And so when we throw the beach ball around, in some ways, Paul's describing something of that nature in chapter 4. He says, you are like, you're like babies being tossed to and fro. I wonder if you identify with that a little bit. That something happens, and you're like, oh, I'm so down, I don't know what to do with myself, this is never going to work itself out. And then the next morning, you're like, overly elated, because yay! And you're like, up and down, two and four, not knowing which way is which. And God's, that's not God's plan for his children. It's not God's plan for his children. He wants us to develop in maturity. He wants us to grow in foundations, in our foundations, establishing ourselves like a massive oak tree that can't be moved. So how do we develop maturity in our lives? We're going to read this section in chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. It's going to appear on the screen. And just think as we're reading it, how does God want us to develop in our maturity as a believer? Starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, what's Paul trying to tell us about this particular part of the armor? He says, Take up the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. And the helmet 
it's probably stating the obvious, is there to protect your head. If you put it anywhere else, it probably won't work. And it's there to, if in the event of receiving a blow from someone with a sword, it's there to protect you. They were often made of metal and leather, all of which had the strength to withstand the most violent attacks from the enemy. The helmet is there to preserve that part of the body that makes all our decisions. And so we can see that Paul sees the importance of the mind and that in the Christian life we're to be aware of how the enemy attacks us in that area. That he attacks the decisions that we make, the very seat of our consciousness. If the devil and his spiritual forces of evil can affect the way you think, it can make you powerless. And this is a a continuing theme, the idea of the mind that we see in Paul's letters. So you might remember in in Colossians chapter 3, he says, set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. Or, Or Romans chapter 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't be conformed by what's going on around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul sees the mind as absolutely crucial to the life and spiritual growth of a Christian. And so he connects it with salvation. He says, the way to protect your mind is to put on salvation. Now that seems like an in- a strange thing to say if he's already writing to Christians. They've already been saved. He says, that you, you Christians, you in Ephesus, you have already put your faith in Jesus and have received salvation. And yet he says, to put on salvation. What's he on about? It doesn't make sense. And yet we can understand salvation in its simplest ways, in three different ways. So firstly, when someone first responds to the gospel of Jesus, they put their trust in him, they receive forgiveness of their sins, and they receive salvation. It's like the first mark of of salvation. And then we can understand salvation in, the, in, in terms of one day Jesus returning and bringing restoration that is every, to everything that is broken in our lives and in this world to bring the kingdom of God in all its fullness. So salvation can be understood in those times. And actually in another letter that Paul writes in, to, uh, in called 1 Thessalonians, in, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Interesting, isn't it? The hope of salvation is a helmet. There's something of putting on salvation where we look at what is to come and we behold that and we say, one day Jesus is going to come and return and make all things new. What a wonderful hope we have. But it's, it's the third way of understanding salvation that I want us to think about in the time that we've got together. You see, Paul is writing to those who have already put their faith in Christ. They've already experienced that first mark of salvation. And I guess many of us here this morning would be like that. We've, we've received Christ. We've received salvation. But Paul seems to be suggesting that there's something else. There's another way of understanding salvation that we can put on now 
as a Christian. So another way of just understanding those three things is when we first believed, we received salvation from the penalty of sin. Then as we live our lives, we receive salvation ongoingly from the power of sin in our lives. And then when Jesus returns, we're going to one day receive salvation from the presence of sin forever. So it's kind of a three-way idea of understanding salvation. And Paul goes on and on about this. You see, sin in our lives isn't necessarily the wrong things that we do. That's often an outcome. But actually at the heart of, of a believer, there's still a wrestle in our hearts between what we know to be true and yet the outcome of that, which is that we often place our affections on other things. We make idols of the things that are around us. We place our worship on things. We look for satisfaction in the things around us. And Paul recognizes that in chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You were dead. You had no hope, no future, and yet in Christ we've been brought near. And so he saves us from the penalty that should have been our own, not just from the wrong decisions that we make, but our natural disposition to place our worship on the things around us. Or to take that one step further, we make ourselves the God of our lives. That's what we mean by sin. And so Paul is challenging this mindset. And in Philippians 2, he writes this, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to work it out. You've got to live this salvation out. There's, a, there's an active participation to it. There's something for us to do now. And in working out our salvation, we, we grow in maturity. When we understand more of what Jesus has done for us, we continue to grow in the light of that. You see, we can often view salvation like a vaccination. Do you remember getting the TB jab? I was in year nine. You were told never to punch your friend where the TB jab was, and that was like a red rag to a bull, and we were just going everywhere, punching everyone in the arm. We can often view salvation like a vaccination. Like when I was 14, I gave my life to Jesus, and that was salvation. Done and dusted, sorted. But it's just not like that, is it? It's not, our lives aren't sorted from that moment on. And so another way of seeing it is it's like having or entering a lifetime of therapy with a doctor who says, you're my patient. I want to care for you. I want to look after you. And I want to get you to the end of your life whole. That's what salvation is. It's a lifetime. It's not a one-hit wonder. We see that in other passages of Scripture. So in Jeremiah, God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and that they may not turn from me. The covenant that, that Jesus bought with his blood is not just a covenant of security, but it's a covenant of preservation. He wants to preserve us through our lives. And the reality is, is that because of that, 
God is active in my life now. He's active in my life now that Christ's salvation is a present day, ongoing, continuation, never-ending, character-building, faith-growing salvation that goes on and on and on. That's the promise of Scripture. He says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so the question that we, we should ask is, how do we experience this kind of salvation? How do we work that salvation out on a daily basis? How do we spiritually mature throughout our life? How do we develop a lifestyle in which we continue to give ourselves to the saving work of Christ? And so, by Paul associating salvation with the helmet, what he's saying is that there's something to do with the mind that we're supposed to do. There's something to do with the mind that matters. And so we're just going to consider two things this morning that help us to think about, well, how do I protect my mind? How do I grow spiritually in my thoughts And in my relationships with people and in what I do, how do I do that? So two things. Are you ready? There's like three or four people. Sweet. That'll do. Are you ready? Two things. Here we go. Okay, two things. The first is repentance. You're like, whoa, that's a bit heavy. Repentance. It's a major theme in the Bible. You can't find an example of salvation in the Bible where repentance doesn't take place. You just can't find it. And often we have a bit of a, we can sometimes have a bit of confusion about what repentance is, like people calling down fire and brimstone on people and telling them how, you know, God hates the sin and all that kind of stuff. And we have this kind of, kind of disfigured picture of what repentance is but actually what repentance is is turning away from your old way of living and pointing your life towards something that is higher it's as simple as that you turn from your old way of living towards something that is higher remember in Colossians he says set your mind on things above and there's loads of references to this salvation and repentance So in Isaiah, it says, This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, I just love this verse. I come back to it time and time again. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Don't you want times of refreshing in your life? If you're anything like me, I need refreshing in my life. And it says here, it says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from God. So they're connected. Salvation and repentance is connected. You can't have true salvation without true repentance. And and when I was a teacher, I would know this deeply when I had to sit a student down and try and dig out an apology from them. 
<laughs> like, you know, Johnny had hit his neighbor with a ruler or thrown a compass at someone. That's how out of control my classes were sometimes. <laughs> and you'd sit them down and you'd say, you need to say sorry, Johnny. You'd be like, no, sorry. And then the, that classic line, what are you sorry for, Johnny? <laughs> and like, sorry for throwing the compass around. And yet, still, as he's saying that, you're like, you are not sorry, you swine, are you? (laughs) And sometimes, we can approach God in a similar way. Sometimes we realize we've made a mistake, and we kind of turn up to church, and we say, yeah, I'm sorry. And we haven't really engaged with what we've done. We just move on. There's no heart change. We just think repentance is a time to apologize, and we move on. The problem is, is that it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. We don't engage with the pain that God feels when we turn our back towards him. We don't engage with that. We don't engage with the pain that we cause God when we sin. We don't see the consequences when we, when we look at the cross of Christ, we often miss out the bit, which is, I put him there. That's a heavy, heavy thought. I am responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. And when our apologies turn into repentance like that, well, we see in Acts, don't we? We say refreshing, times of refreshing come. And so in repentance, we aren't just repenting of of the little things that we do in our lives and the mistakes that we make, but we're actually repenting of, of the condition of our hearts, the attitudes that we have, the things that we worship around us, our security in money, relationships, family. I wonder how often we we repent for those things. How often do we come to God and we confess that I've worshipped my relationships with my family more than I have of God. I wonder how often we come to God and do that. I certainly don't do that often. I feel much more comfortable coming to him with the little things. But when we see sin for what it is, we understand that repentance isn't just an apology, but it's a turning in our mind to things above to things that are higher. And so we're to work out our salvation by developing a consistent discipline of repentance, of confessing to God and confessing to each other, might I add. We're to come and build relationships with people where we feel comfortable sharing what we're dealing with, the sin in our lives, our struggles. That's what friendship is. That's what true friendship is. When I can come to someone and say, I am dealing with this in my life. I need someone to pray for me. That's what repentance is. If you want a good book to read, for that you could not do much better than Richard Forster, or Richard Foster rather, Celebration of Discipline. He's got a great chapter on the discipline of repentance and confession. It's wonderful. You should pick it up. It's fantastic. 
And the wonderful thing about coming to God and coming with our challenges, with our sin, our heart attitude is that he never turns us away. He never rebukes us. He never turns us away. He wants us to engage in the sorrow of what we've done. He wants us to consider the consequences of that. But he doesn't turn us away. And that's because at the very heart of God, he is a savior. Salvation isn't just something that he does for people. It's in his very nature to do so. At the very heart of God, he's a rescuer. You see it right the way through scripture. Exodus, people are saved from slavery. He's a rescuer. Even before Jesus comes, we see story after story after story of God rescuing his people. It's part of who he is. And so then when we come to the cross, when we come to Jesus, it's in its fullest expression that he gave his son to die for you, for the mess that you're in, the decisions that you made, the things that you worship. He gave his one and only son to die for you and release you from the penalty of sin and then fill you with his spirit so that you can fight and battle against the power of sin in your life so that when we come to the end of our lives or when Jesus returns, we experience full salvation and redemption where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. I mean, just imagine that. Nothing except pure joy. Joy and perfection. It's wonderful. Augustine says this, he says, The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. As we come to God and we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And it's the beginning of good works in our lives. So in what areas of your life do you need to repent of? What do you need to confess to God and to each other? could be some big stuff. And yet God calls us to do that. We don't have to hide it away from him. and We don't have to hide it from each other. It's a mindset change. It's a deliberate change in our thinking that when we wake up each morning, we commit that day to God and we acknowledge our deep need for him. That's starting to develop a discipline of repentance. We need you, God. I need you, God. In my fallenness, I receive your faithfulness. So we're, there's something of repentance that Paul might be touching on in taking on salvation in our lives, acknowledging our need for him. But the second thing is, is that we're to be prepared. You see, armor only really works if, in a battle if you've remembered to put it on. <laughs> if you forget, it's pointless, isn't it? There's no point trying to strap it all while you're trying to defeat the enemy. You've got to have it on. And there's something of that that Paul is saying here. You see, it's not like medicine that you can put on or you can take afterwards. You have to be prepared for what is to come. In our battle to protect our minds, in our battle to protect the way we think and make decisions that honor God, we're to make deliberate choices 
in peacetime before the battle comes. There's something of being prepared and ready with regards to how we feed ourselves. A sign of of spiritual maturity is that in and out of season, in the highs and in the lows, in the battles and in relative peace, we continue to turn to truth. We continue to depend on God. We lean into him. Joseph did it in the Old Testament. Remember, he predicts that there's going to be a famine in seven years. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't just twiddle his thumbs. He puts grain away. He invests. He makes good decisions in peacetime before the challenges come. It's what we're supposed to do in our lives. We're supposed to dwell on what is good. Dwell on the things above. That in putting the armor on, we're preparing ourselves for what is to come. And we can do that in all sorts of ways. Spiritual disciplines would be a good place to start. That we commit ourselves to reading the Bible. We commit ourselves to praying with each other. I don't know how many times I've got myself in a right mess and then I start to pray. We're supposed to do it to prepare ourselves. So we come in repentance and we prepare ourselves for the inevitable challenges and the fight that we have. And as I was preparing this, and I think you should come up, Ben, and play some guitar for us, but we're going to respond together. But as I was preparing this, I felt particularly strong about this idea of of repentance and confession, both individually, but also as a body, as, as a church. And I guess in our our tradition, as it were, of church that we're in, we don't really do that very well. We don't often get an opportunity to come and confess our sin to God, to acknowledge our fallenness, to acknowledge that we need Him. Don't often do that. And so I wanted to create some space for us to do that this morning. It's quite a sobering experience to do it. It's quite a, it's, it's a very real moment where you realize that your affections have been misplaced. But there's an opportunity in which God meets with us, in which the Spirit comes and points us to, the, to that which is higher. And so to help us, I'm just going to read Psalm 51. I'm going to invite us to stand. So feel free to do that if you can. And I'm going to read from Psalm 51. And uh, it's a psalm that I turn to because it expresses something of David's deep need for God. It expresses something of, of his sin that he's dealing with and an opportunity for God to cleanse him. And so as I read it, I encourage you, you might want to close your eyes, you, you might want to engage with God in this moment. An opportunity to to turn away from your old life and to set your mind on things above. So this is what it says. And you might want to echo these words in your heart as I read it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. 
according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen.